Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. May the Lord add his blessing to that reading. Thank you. I'm going to tell you an, the most epic fishing story in the world today. Um, but the main point of the story is not the fish. But to understand this story... And then to understand that passage, the sign of Jonah, we need to look at some uh, background information first. So, but before we, we start, I'm going to pray. Lord, please help me to share clearly today and please, through your word, because of your love for us, please speak to us, change us and help us to be more like you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to need your help for some of it. But uh, first what I want to talk about is who, who is Jonah? So Jonah comes up in uh, 2 Kings chapter 14 and at the time of King Jeroboam II, who was a, one of the kings of Israel, a very evil king, the prophet Jonah prophesied that his borders would expand. And then later, some other prophets said a, prophet, a prophecy which then turned that back the other way. So right from the beginning, Jonah's kind of a strange character. And at the time of, of Jonah... There was only one world power, and that was the Assyrian Empire. Now, in one of my previous talks, I talked about the Roman Empire and how cruel they were sometimes. Well, the Assyrian Empire were far crueler. They were absolutely horrendous what they did to their enemies. Almost, you can't mention what they did. They were the only world power, and Nineveh was the capital city at the time. And they were the arch enemy of Israel. There, are 12, there were 12 tribes of Israel, and 10 of them are now scattered, and nobody knows who they are, and there's all these theories about who the 10 tribes of Israel are. There's this Papua New Guinean tribe say, we're one of the lost tribes, and then some people say they're like Scandinavians and all this kind of stuff. But the people who scattered those 10 tribes were the Assyrian Empire. They're the ones. They raided, they, they, they conquered and, and invaded Israel four times. So... You've got to get the setting. Jonah may have known people personally who were killed, tortured, humiliated by the Assyrians. So there was deep hatred for the, for the Assyrians. They would do horrendous things. They would skin their enemies alive. Then they would bury them up to their head in sand. Then they would pull their tongues out and nail them to the ground so they would go crazy in their thirst. And then they would decapitate their enemies and pile them up in a pyramid outside the city as a warning to anyone else that was coming past. You try to bother us, this is what we're going to do to you. Just horrendous. And they found lots of um, archaeological uh, like walls of old Assyrian places where they would um, carve into the walls, into the rock, their conquests and uh, what they did in, in their um, wartime. And that's how we know so much about the Assyrian uh, Empire. And so... Just remember, if, if, it's hard for us to picture because we don't have any uh, enemies like that in Australia. 
A lot of the world do have mortal enemies like that, where for generations there's a tribe versus a tribe, or there's a country versus a country. And uh, that was the situation in the time of Jonah. Just incredible animosity and hatred towards the Assyrians. And um, I I need someone to help me uh, who can use their phone to use Google Maps because there's a few places in this story that you need to be familiar with. So if someone can look up Nineveh on their phone on Google Maps and tell me which country it's in. Anyone got that? Where's Nineveh? Yeah? Very interesting where this is situated. Anyone got it? Not Scotland. (laughs) It's not in Australia. It's not in the British Isles. Anyone got it? Where's Nineveh? Sorry? Come on, you guys. Just go in Google Maps and put in Nineveh. Yes, it's in uh, northern Iraq. It's in northern Iraq. And get this, the city closest to Nineveh, it's right next to where ancient Nineveh was, is Mosul, which is where ISIS came through and slaughtered and drove out many of the Christians who were actually Assyrians themselves. It's very interesting. So the Assyrians are still around. Massive empire. They're they're a lot smaller now. There's lots of them in Sydney, actually. And, And their numbers have been decimated from the Middle East as they've been driven out by ISIS and other groups like that. So it's in northern Iraq. Now I need someone to look up how long it takes to walk from Jerusalem to Nineveh. So go on Google Maps and put Jerusalem to Nineveh. And, tell me, and put in the walking symbol, tell me how many days it takes to walk there. <laughs> okay. Nine days and nine hours. Okay, it takes nine days, nine hours to walk from Jerusalem to Nineveh. Now somebody, there's, a, there's another uh, city named in this story called Tarshish. Now most people think Tarshish was in Spain which is the furthest part of the, Ro- of the um, Roman Empire, of the furthest part of the empire that people knew at that, at that time uh, in Spain. So somebody look up, how long does it take to walk from Israel to Spain? How many days? <laughs> 39 days. Okay, you got that? It takes nine days to walk from Israel to Nineveh, and it takes 39 days to walk, to travel from Israel to Spain, or Tarshish, as it's called in this story. And if you look on the map, you'll see that here's Israel, then you go up here, and there's Nineveh in northern Iraq. And then if you go the opposite direction, exactly, like three, four times further, five times further, I guess, 39? Oh, my bad math. Was it 49 or 39? 39, so four times th- further, three times further. And you, <laughs> yeah, a lot further. And then you get to Tarshish. So that's the geography of it. I'm not known for my geography <laughs> or sense of direction. There's some other images in this story that are important to understand. Sackcloth and ashes. Now when I tell this story to my kids, 
I call sackcloth itchy clothes to that sh show people are sorry, but I'm not going to use that because everyone laughs every time I say that. So sackcloth was actually itchy clothes. They're made from goat hair or something. You put it on your skin. It was like a garbage bag. It just had a head here and then gap there. It's a very undignified clothing and very uncomfortable. And people, when they were mourning or they were sorry, they would put this on and they would sit in ashes Sort of like the opposite of a guy cruising in his Lamborghini with his suit. Yeah, I'm the man. He's like the opposite. He's in sackcloth and he's in ashes. He's saying, I'm sorry, woe to me. I did the wrong thing. I feel really bad. So that's another thing to remember. Another image in this story is the idea of casting lots. Now, in the ancient world, when people couldn't figure something out and they wanted to know the will of God or the will of the gods, they would cast lots. It's kind of like drawing short straws and whoever got the short straw lost. So you'll see that in this story as well. So... Just to recap, Jonah was a prophet. Uh, Nineveh city was the capital of the most ruthless empire that ever existed. They were the mortal enemies of Israel. And it takes nine days to travel from Israel to Nineveh and 39 days to travel from Israel to Spain. Okay, so now I'm going to tell you the story. Listen carefully because uh, God may speak to you as you hear this story, because a lot of it is quite self-explanatory, but there's a lot of secrets and, and interesting parts in it as well. Uh, just to preface it more, this is probably the strangest prophet book in the whole Bible because the, prophet, the prophetic books are usually heaps and heaps of um, kind of poetic prophecy that the prophet would say, speaking on behalf of God. This is a very strange book of prophecy because the prophecy is actually the actions of Jonah, the life of Jonah. So as you're listening to this story, try to see what God might be trying to tell the Israelites at that time and what God might be trying to tell you. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. God said, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord, heading towards Tarshish. He went down to the port of Joppa, and he found a boat heading towards Tarshish. He paid the fare, and he went down and got on board, and off they went. Now God sent a huge wind to stir up the ocean, and there was a massive storm, and the waves were so great that the boat was threatening to break apart. All the sailors started freaking out, and they were really terrified, and they started calling out, each one to their own God, and they threw the cargo overboard. Meanwhile, Jonah was at the bottom of the boat, and he'd fallen into a deep sleep. And the ship's captain went down and said, what are you doing? Get up. Get up and call on your God. How can you sleep at a time like this? Pray. Call on your God. Maybe your God will notice us, and we won't all die. And the, and the uh, sailors said, let's cast lots to see who's responsible for this great calamity. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, who's responsible for this calamity? Where are you from? What do you do? What ethnic group are you from? And he said, I am a Hebrew, and I worship Yahweh, the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea 
and the dry land. Now, when Jonah said this, they were even more terrified because they knew he was fleeing from the Lord because he'd already told them so. Now, meanwhile, the ocean just kept getting rougher and rougher and rougher. So they yelled out, Jonah, tell us what we have to do to stop this storm that's coming down onto us. And Jonah said, pick me up and throw me into the ocean and the storm will cease. I know that it's my fault that this great calamity has come upon you. But instead, the, so, the, soldier, the, the, the uh, sailors just tried to row harder and harder and harder to get back to shore, but it was no use because the waves were even bigger by now. So they prayed, Oh Lord, please don't kill us for taking this man's life. Please don't hold us responsible for taking an innocent man's life because God, all of this stuff that's happened was according to your plan. And so... They pick Jonah up and they chuck him overboard. And instantly, the sea became calm. And the sailors were in awe of God and they feared God. They worshipped him and they made a sacrifice to him and they made vows to him. Meanwhile, God appointed a fish to swallow up Jonah. And he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And while he was in the fish, this is what he prayed. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas and the currents swirled over me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayers rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and he spewed him up on dry land. Now a second time, God spoke to Jonah. He said, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message I'll, I give to you. Jonah obeyed the Lord. He got up and he made his way to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. It took three days to walk from one end to the other, about 100 kilometers. And when Jonah had got just one day in, he started yelling out, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. 
And the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. And each of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And when the news reached the king, he got off his throne, took off his royal robes, and put on sackcloth. And he sat in ashes. And he put out a decree to go through all the land. By a decree of the king and his nobles, let man and beast not taste anything. Let no one eat or drink a thing. Let everyone put on sackcloth. Let everyone call out urgently to God. Let everyone cease from their wicked ways and the violence that's in their hands. Who knows? Maybe God will have compassion and not bring upon us the calamity that he has threatened and we won't all die. Now when God saw what the Ninevites did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion on them and relented from the disaster he had threatened. He didn't do it. But when Jonah saw this, he felt very upset. And he became furious. And he prayed, Oh God, oh, this is exactly what I said. This is, I knew this would happen. This is why I l went the other way in the first place. This is what I said when I was still at home. This is why I tried to flee to Tarshish. Oh, I knew you were a God of love, compassion, slow to anger, abounding in love, quick to forgive, ready to relent from bringing calamity. Oh, if this is the way it's going to be, just kill me now. And God said, do you have any right to be angry? But Jonah went out the east gate of the city and sat down somewhere, built a little booth for himself and just watched to see what would happen to the city. And then God caused a vine to grow up over Jonah's head to ease his discomfort. And oh, he was very happy about the vine. But then the next morning, God sent a worm to smite the vine, to destroy it. And when the sun came up and the scorching east wind was burning on Jonah's head, he was furious, so angry, he wanted to die. And he said, God, I want to die. It's better for me to die than live. And God said, do you have a right to be angry? And he said, I do. I'm angry enough to die. And then God said, Jonah, you were so concerned about this vine. You didn't plant it. You didn't make it grow. It came up in one night and it died in one night. Shouldn't I be concerned about the great city of Nineveh? It has over 120,000 infants and many cattle. And that's the end of that story. Now the Bible reading we had was where the Jews, the uh, Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, they said to Jesus, we want to see a sign to prove you're the Messiah. We want to see a sign. And Jesus said, no sign will be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. Just as the Son of Man was three days just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be 
in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And the people of Nineveh will stand up against you at the day of judgment because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But someone greater than Jonah is here. You see, Jonah is kind of like the encapsulation of the whole nation of Israel's history in one man's story and life. The nationalism, the stubbornness. They knew so much. They had the law. They knew God. But they didn't have God's heart. And yet God was so patient and so kind, not giving up on them because he promised he wouldn't give up on them. Even though they were so stiff-necked, so hard-hearted. And you can imagine Jonah after three days and three nights in the belly of a whale coming out. He must not have looked very good. <laughs> there are stories of people being trapped inside big fishes and, and whales and things and then actually living. And the stomach juices of the whale eat away at the guy's skin and he comes out looking as white as a ghost and, and kind of like in a half zombie kind of state. <laughs> so I don't know what Jonah looked like, but it must have been pretty shocking for this guy that had just walked, you know, nine days and, well, actually, we don't know how far he walked because we don't know where he was spewed out, but walked a few days and looking absolutely horrible. And they saw this and they thought, well, we've got to repent. And yet the Jews, having seen the death and the resurrection of Jesus, still most of them refused to repent. So this is kind of like Jesus saying a prophecy. No more sign is going to be given to you. My death and resurrection is enough. But still, most of you will not believe. And it's so interesting because just like here you have, you see, you see in this story, there's just so many interesting things. Look at all the people and all the things that obey God. Right? You go, you go from the start, you've got... Uh, the wind obeying God, the storm obeying God, the sailors obeying God and submitting to God. And then you've got uh, the storm obeying God again when it dies down. And then you've got the fish obeying God. And then you've got the vine obeying God. And then you've got, well, you've got the Ninevites obeying God. And then you've got the, the worm obeying God. Everyone's obeying God. Everyone's wide awake and responsive to God's commands. But Jonah is rebellious and asleep. And it's a picture of Israel. And it's the same picture that is left with the older brother in the prodigal son story. And just like in this story, we don't know how it pans out. It's purposely a cliffhanger. Because you're meant to look at this story and go, oh, that Jonah, he's horrible, he's horrible, he's horrible. And then very subtly by the end of the story, you realize, oh, it's talking about me. <laughs> See, Jonah was disobedient, but God was so patient with him. Jonah had been saved from the fish, and still his heart had not changed. And we have been saved from death, and so often we still do not have the heart of God. And Jonah thought that God hated the same people he hated. But God doesn't take sides like that. God loves everyone. Well, you might say, I don't want God to love my enemies. 
and I don't want God to love his enemies, well, then you're in trouble because we're all enemies of God before Jesus saves us and we become friends with God. So it's the grand leveler. It's the, it's the proud Jew saying, I'm a Jew. I love my country. Let's, you know, to hell with the rest of them, the, all the violence and the things they do. And God's going, no, 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 no. I love them. And Jonah's like, what? They, they want to wipe us out? God's going, I love them. I love them. It, I've preached a few times now. Uh, it's the first time I've really preached. And over and over again, I keep being struck with the same idea. How much God loves wicked sinners like us. His grace, his love is so much bigger than ours. It's so much broader. We want to box God in. These are the kind of people God loves. He loves more than that. He loves bigger than that. See, I've done a lot of friendship evangelism in my life, and friendship evangelism is great. But God was giving Jonah a lesson on enemy evangelism. <laughs> enemy evangelism. Imagine that. You know what? As Christians, that's what we're called to. We're called to enemy evangelism. And that's the challenge I want to leave you this week. Jesus has already given the greatest sign you could ever ask for. He died and he rose from the dead. He died because he loved us and he rose from the dead. We've now been freed. Jesus died for his enemies. And now he instructs us to do the same thing. But where's your heart? Maybe you're not like Jonah. You don't like hate certain people or certain groups of people. But maybe like Jonah, there are just some things you like and you're more concerned about than the lost. For Jonah, it was the vine. What's it for you? What is it that gets in the road of you inconveniencing yourself with your time, your money, your energy to share with those you don't like? And I think it's a great challenge this week. Don't limit yourself at friendship evangelism. Try some stranger evangelism. Try some enemy evangelism. Think of someone you really, really dislike. <laughs> Everyone's thinking of someone right now. <laughs> maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's a relative. <laughs> maybe it's a colleague. Maybe it's your boss. <laughs> Why don't you be like God's heart and instead of sitting back and going, oh, tut, 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 those terrible people. Go and share the gospel with them. Go and tell them how God has changed your life. It's the most loving thing you could do and perhaps the most painful for many of us because it's like daggers, but I want them to suffer. I don't, I, I don't want them to be saved. But then they'll come to church maybe and I have to see them all every Sunday. It's like, I have to spend eternity with them. God's love is so gracious, gracious, he doesn't leave us in our horrible state of hating our enemies. This is such a radical concept. There's no other religious ideology or anything that comes close to this. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. I remember when, um, when I first went to uh, central China, to Chengdu, um, before that I had made an oath 
to God. I said, I will never share with Muslims or Buddhists because it's too hard. It wasn't because I hated them, but I thought it'd be too hard and they'll never turn anyway. What a terrible attitude. The story teaches us maybe God will relent. We need to have faith in God. And sure enough, because I made that vow, God, uh, through, through his uh, um, predestination, I guess, he, he put me on a team that were all focusing on Muslims and my wife and I were focusing on Buddhists. So <laughs> don't tell God you won't do something or it's sure to come true. Don't say it. Just don't say it. Just stop yourself. And when I first met Tibetan Buddhist monks, I kind of despised them because I was like, oh, they worship idols and they, they lead all these people astray and they start these monasteries and they, they have all these little boys that get separated from their families and who knows what goes on in there. It's horrible. But then God slowly started to change my heart to go, wait a minute, they're just young punks in weird kind of red clothes. They're just like me. They didn't choose to grow up in that situation. If I'd grown up there, I'd be a monk too, Probably. So God started changing my heart and I started reaching out to them and becoming friends with them and sharing the gospel with them. And some of them became Christians. Some of the monks became Christians. And see, this is the mystery. You don't know what God's going to do. The conversion rate among Tibetan Buddhist monks is higher than amongst the rest of the Tibetan population. Who would have thought? And I remember when um, 9-11 hit, I was in Beijing and... uh, so this was, um, the internet was just starting out, right? And there's a thing called a VPN, a virtual proxy network, which you can use to go over the, the restrictions in whatever country you are and watch whatever you want on the internet. Now, we didn't have those things at the time. So when 9-11 happened, there was kind of a blackout on the media in China, and they weren't really reporting it. And my American teammates were all freaking out. Oh, we want to see what's happening. What's happening to our country? So we went into a, a big hotel and we pleaded with them that we could watch CNN on their like, international channels inside the hotel. At first they said no, but they eventually relented. And we went in and we were watching and there the planes were, everyone probably remembers where they were when they first saw those planes come into the buildings. And we'd been reaching out to these Chinese students and, and you know, praying for them and God have mercy on them and, and really loving these students. But I remember one of my American teammates when he saw the the plane's going in, he said, whoever did this, this is going to pay. And I was like, whoa, there's some hate right there. But maybe I would have felt the same if it happened to Australia. And my point is, it's hard. It's really hard to love your enemies. It's really hard. Most of us don't really know what that feels like to that, to that kind of degree. I remember once when I did some prison ministry, some people said to me, I don't think you should do that. I said, why? I said, because they don't deserve God's grace. They're in there for a reason. But do you deserve God's grace? <laughs> right? We're all the same. We're all enemies of God, except that Jesus comes and rescues us. So the challenge I want to leave you, where is your heart? Do you love your enemies? Do you love the people that really annoy you? Do you really love them? Or are you just try to avoid them and smile a bit and avoid them more. Where's your heart? I'll leave you with that challenge again. This week, go to someone you, that really annoys you and tell them what God has done in your life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Assume the best. Assume that's not why it was. Who knows? Maybe God will make you make up. I don't know. <laughs> that's right. So <laughs> the next call you get, you know what's, what that means now. Yeah. So I'm just going to leave like about a minute of silence and I want you just to
Ask God, who is that person in your life that you've been holding a grudge against, that you've been refusing to show love to, refusing to associate with, refusing to share the good news with? And ask God to soften your heart so that you don't become like Jonah. I'm going to leave one minute, then I'm going to pray. Father God, we confess we have, we have not had your heart and we have often not acted to bless our enemies, to bless those that we don't like. I pray you'd forgive us and change our hearts by your supernatural power, by your Spirit's power. Would you give us the, the strength this week that we are shocked to find ourselves reaching out and sharing the good news with the people that we have harbored um, spite towards, that we'd held grudges towards. Forgive us because of what you did on the cross, dying for your enemies. Thank you for bringing us into your family. Please help us to call everyone into your family. In Jesus' name, amen.